Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from episode 14, in which Louise Campbell, Jorn Schottenberg, and I take a look at the highlights of what should be a very exciting second quarter. Since we didn't post this episode until Friday afternoon, we will forego the vault episode for a week, and it will return next week at the back end of our River Forum 14 session. Louise Campbell starts this conversation by focusing on something she fears will not be covered in the next three months, allied health provider education. As she notes, physician education is growing, patient education is growing. But when patients come to see a health professional, their first points of contact will be nurses, and this presents a double problem. First, as she points out, there is no nursing community trained to deal with fatty liver diseases or to educate on them, not even hepatology. Second, there's not much she sees in the way of ongoing training for that community. Louise sees this as natural content for nurses to learn and appreciate, and it's a way they can have real impact on patients' lives. But she sees little or no effort to push forward. Jorn Schottenberg recalls that this had been a key point of focus last year in Barcelona at INCBCN1. He envisions that physicians will be overwhelmed and need support, while simultaneously pointing out that not all systems utilize allied health professionals to the same degree or in the same way. He recalls a specific comment from a general practitioner in Belgium at the Barcelona meeting and regrets that the topic will not be covered this year, but expects it to make a return for INCBCN3. I share an estimate from the U.S. Health Resources and Services Administration that of the 250,000 frontline treaters for primary care and metabolic disease in the U.S., roughly 40% are allied health professionals. This suggests to me that in the U.S., approval of drugs will lead drug companies to drive strong allied health education programs, which will translate fairly cleanly into global markets. As we transition from this topic, Jorn notes his excitement in the phase three trials that are finishing enrollment and picking up steam in the market. He expresses concern that these issues might not appear in the public domain, which leads me to comment as the conversation ends. The stories do appear in press and online about key events, recently including Galactin Pharmaceuticals finishing enrollment in a Phase 2B3 adaptive trial. The next three months promise an array of exciting events here in Nashville, conferences, papers, and perhaps a key, really exciting regulatory milestone. You can hear the excitement and enthusiasm in our voices and our manner, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. One of the things we're going to try to do in the second quarter, if I can figure out how to do it, is cover the ad board meeting, which is on May 19th. So um, that should, uh, it's not a perfect predictor of what's going to happen in June, but it, it will be helpful because we can compare it to what happened three years ago. And I'm hoping that we can figure out how to get enough insight or information out of that meeting to make a compelling episode for the middle part of May. And frankly, the, I think uh, beta-colic acid is my story of the second quarter. That, and I'm assuming, which is foolish, that resmeterome should be filing right around them and hoping that they can file in the second quarter because that would get them to their particular for date before the end of the year, and we could actually exit 2023 really in a, in a good place if that were to happen. I have no information about when that'll take place, but it, it's a possibility. What does PDUFA stand for? It refers to when you file, the FDA gives you a deadline by which it has to either come to a decision or defer a decision. The PDUFA date is that date. And if you're on accelerated approval, that's a six-month timeline. If you're not, it's a one-year timeline. Early NASH drugs are all on accelerated approval. Jaren Schattenberg. So it's actually the Prescription Drug User Free Act, PDUFA. Thank you. But you know more about it than I, uh, having operated in the system. Right. It's the enabling legislation. And this was originally the legislation when they increased budget for FDA by allowing manufacturers to incur some of the cost of getting to the date in exchange for commitment. Before that, we were really laggards on drug approvals because the thing stacked up at FDA forever. So it, it made FDA more efficient. It made the U.S. frequently the fastest to approve drugs in the world, which it had not been before that. And that is the act. Expediting drug review 
and approval, which is a great thing, again, for patients and, of course, the way the drug development works. Well, the other thing Sorry. that I'd like to highlight is, of course, Intercept has a not a great um, presence in Europe anymore and has passed on those drug rights to a different company. And we're trailing a little bit here, which is the sad news for patients in Europe. Moving forward, I'm hopeful that we'll get similar responses in Europe and uh, this will also be beneficial then for us. I think that's right. And frankly, if the U.S. approves, I think that will be a marker to what's going to happen everywhere else. So hopefully as soon as possible, but approval would be huge. Approval would cause dramatic increases, I think, in investment by big drug companies and private investors and everybody else and would just really be a fantastic thing. We're also, I think, going to be, as you point out, you're in a lot of phase three uh, published outside of press releases in Vienna, but we're going to be seeing more press releases, right? You and I were talking about this last week offline, the uh, the phase 2B bio89 results, which is second FGF21, in some ways uh, very similar to Afroxifermin, to the Cairo results in some ways a little bit different. But a lot of the drug trials that were delayed because of the pandemic are now starting to come up the, up the pike. And we should be starting to see more data more frequently because of the combination of things now coming to fruition and investment becoming more common. And, and I agree. And we could uh, we could probably talk about that for another full episode. The results of Pegosifermin being presented in press release and some of the notable statistics around that drug, which were also discussed during the ASLD meeting, at least off the stage and a low placebo response rates for something that we haven't seen in the field. Fibrosis regression and placebo by 7%, NASH resolution at 2%. You know, the metrics behind that and how, how can that be is something that is not by chance, but by defining and refining the way the results are reported today. So we've made leaps, I would say, in the field in reporting outcomes. We have an awful lot to do in the second quarter, Jorn, but, and I agree with you. I would love to get an episode in that talks about that. And more, you know, um, Stephen and uh, Naeem and Mazen and Alina Allen published a paper recently on Nash Drug Trial Challenges. I'm hoping that we can get one, two, maybe three of those folks to come join us for a week in May or in June since April's already spoken for and talk about that paper because clearly all the discussion over the last year and a half or two about how to make trials work better is, is coming to ferment and we're seeing it in things like the ghost of ferment placebo response rates. So it will be exciting to talk about their paper and about all the places that we're making progress and where we think we're going to make more. Yeah, and let me them. just add, you were mentioning a paper. So this is a review published in Nature Medicine, which is one of the highest ranked reviews journals we're looking at. And clearly them covering this shows the momentum and the way forward and the wealth of data we've generated. So congratulations to those four authors. Again, a great piece and well-respected colleagues. Alina put a comment on Twitter that I think speaks to the experience we all have in this podcast as well, which is it's so much easier when you're working with your friends with one of her comments on the paper. Those are three things. What else do we want to cover on today that's going to happen in the second quarter? Louise Campbell. I'll cover something that I don't think, sadly, will be covered. It'll be the allied health education so that we get to roll these medications out. If we're as close as we think we are, we should have already started. And we haven't. I haven't seen much. There's a there's a fair amount in the physician's level because we discuss it here regularly. There's a fair amount in the patient advocacy arena to make patients aware that this is coming. These people are going to front up to nurses, whether it's in cardiology, endocrinology and hepatology. And remember, there is no skill set for NASH and NAFLD in hepatology. I've said it before, we only get to see in a hepatology specialist unit, as I'm sure John will, John will say, we only get to see the sick liver patients. We don't need to see them then. So the, our skill set is liver disease. It is not talking to patients about NAFLD and NASH. It is not health education on that level because we don't see them. And yet we've got very little of any education going in to now give the skill set to roll out all of this information because it is fascinating information. It is a real 
area that nurses can change people's lives on one or two interactions before they get to a physician or after they've got to a physician. So that teamwork, we're not really working on and it's going to be absolutely vital. So that's one thing I haven't really seen. And I know I talk about it and I <laughs> a lot in the fact, but I think it's absolutely vital to how we're going to get these medications out or get people through pathways to prove that they're entitled to these medications. This will not be everybody gets access to resmeterone beta-cholic acid without certainly a few hurdles being put in the way and who's going to monitor those hurdles there's a lot of pathway work and structure to go in and yet i haven't heard a lot of that discussion so i think that's what's not happening in the next three months but i'd like to see us start to get it within the next six to nine months because we're going to need it couldn't agree more and louise last year in barcelona we had you come on stage and we had a discussion around that and agreed that allied health profession is the support and actually the primary care physician from belgium said that and I remember well in his talk you know he can't see all these patients it's the patients that are with his nurses that are in the diabetes control programs we have a disease management program in Germany they, they show up for the prescription they show up for their you know body weight check and urine dipstick and maybe get a quick reminder on nutritional and those are the contacts in the healthcare system imagine we have a drug and we don't identify the patients this is like missing out on providing disparate healthcare and I agree it's the physicians are going to be overwhelmed by selecting those patients. So we need that help. And that comes up every once in a while. Now, allied health professionals are not used to the same extent in every healthcare system. And for me, that's a clear disadvantage in the German system. But I do see how the UK could benefit. And unfortunately, we don't have it on the program this year in Barcelona uh, with the implications, uh, innovations in NAFLD care. But it's something we have to revisit. And I'm with you. This has to be revisited and, and see how we get the patients that are eligible to actually access the drug once it's there. Excellent point. Let me share a number that we talk about a lot on Rising Tide, but not a lot on this podcast um, because that's for frontline treaters. In the U.S. right now, the government estimates through Health Resources Administration that there are probably about a quarter of a million frontline prescribers for metabolic diseases, including primary care, internists of primary care, endocrinologists, and physician assistants and nurse practitioners. And of those, I think the numbers that about 40% of those are non-physicians, are allied providers. Uh, between the nurse practitioners and the PAs, I think you get up to about 100,000. And then you put 150,000 on top of that. And then for older population. She put some gerontologists on top of that or geriatricians, really, on top of that. So the good news there, Louise, I think from your perspective or from the perspective you're taking in this conversation, all of our perspectives, is that approval in the U.S., will lead to rather aggressive allied health education over here by many of the same companies that will be bringing product to market in the rest of the world. So now, admittedly, that's that's company-driven education, not uh, the same, not as unbiased, if you will, as education that you would get if it came out of governments or universities. But it will bespeak a significant increase in investment and understanding the role that the allied health professionals play in systems. So I think that's a good thing. One of the things we do better in the U.S., and the things we do better, things we do worse. I think that'll help. I, and I agree with that. I think that that will be pivotally important. You Jorn, you have a second you want to you want to mention? I would hope that some of the phase three studies will complete enrollment. I would hope that recruitment of some of the phase three trials are picking up. So that's maybe something that's not as much in the public domain. I'm not meaning secretly, but it's not, it's not so as much in the focus. But the ongoing phase three programs, and we have four active ones, not all are fully recruited yet. And that, that's an important task for you know, all these investigators uh, out there. So it's, I think it's not in the public domain, but you do see it. I think I saw, if I recall correctly, the Collectin announced that they had finished recruiting for their uh, enrollment for their phase two, three adaptive cirrhosis trial. Recruitment is a predictor to where we're going to have data, right? So as we see things enroll more aggressively, start to finish enrollment, change trial designs, I, I, th I think all these are promising things. I, I agree. 
And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email directly to questions at surfingnish.com. Next week, we'll be joined by our friend Veronica Miller and others who participated in what promises to be a truly exciting, even inspiring Liver 14 meeting in Washington, D.C. this weekend. The meeting should be great, and the session on it should be among our best. So until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on podcast. Bye-bye now.